today at Fearless Wealth, I have my amazing friend, um, Jessica, my fellow Spartan chick. We go way back, way back. Um, we've went through several phases, Spartan, you know, n- belief system, politics, everything, 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 everything. We've talked about all the good stuff and she is a 911 operator and she's going to tell us a little bit about what that is and what that's like. And it, it's always such a, such an opening conversation. Um, so yeah, let's get it on it. Opinionated control dominatrix friend, money witch, demon whisperer, legend, demon queen, business bitch, and five percent are here at Fearless Wealth. Um, and today I have an old friend with me who has a very colorful life and diverse and has the nose of curiosity and traveling and life experience. Um, my friend Jessica, my fellow Spartan. I think that's how we know each other, no? <laughs> it is. It is going back all those years. Yes. Uh, hi. <laughs> oh, Spartan time. Damn, that's long as ago. That was a family time. It was. It was. I haven't done one in many, many years. I don't even, I don't think I could do one today. So I just started running last week again. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> oh, how long is it? When did we do the Spartan? 2014? Yeah. Yeah, it was 14. I started training to do my first one with my ex-husband. So it was it was definitely 2014 because we got divorced in 15. So Damn. Yeah. And the Spartan chicks. Spartan time was good family time. I think it grew out of proportion now. So every time I peek back into the community, I'm like, nah, this ain't it anymore. We had the, we had the best times, but I don't feel... Uh, no, they were amazing. I met some incredible people that I'm still friends with to this day, you included. And it's been, no, it's been spectacular. So I wouldn't take any of it back. My knees might say something else, but <laughs> I wouldn't take any of it back. We're dead, damn right. So will you tell us, will you introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us anything or anything, everything, whatever you want. <laughs> sure. So... I have lived in Utah most of my life, which is interesting in and of itself. Um, For the last 12 years or so, I have been working as a 911 operator, police dispatcher. Before that, I was in a completely different element. I actually did, I managed a real estate office. Um, I was an executive assistant and office manager for a very, very high-end boutique real estate office. That ended right around when the market crashed in 2008 and found myself out of a job and without really anything else to fall back on, no education. So kind of have spent the last 12 years doing something completely different from that while, you know, raising an incredible human being, being married, Mm -hmm. being divorced, being remarried. 
and just sort of living life, going through a lot of very different seasons personally and, you know, finding myself, losing myself, you know, several times. Hmm. So from what, how did you get from real estate to 911 operator? Like that's such a, such a jump. It's such a jump. Um, I, when the market crashed, so I was making six figures easily, you know, the year that the market crashed, but that was because I was really good at what I did. And I also worked for somebody that no one else really wanted to work with because he was kind of a bastard. Can I say that? Absolutely. Okay. So he was kind of a bastard and no one wanted to work for him and I could tolerate him. And I did a kick-ass job running his office, but I also, you know, didn't need to, didn't actually need to have an education while I was doing that because I was so good at what I did. I didn't need a formal education. So when the market crashed, I found myself out of a job with no one hiring, no education to fall back on and no idea what to do. Because when I started at that company, I was there for over 10 years. So when I started there, I was only 17. It was my first like adult job out in the real world. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't know anything else. So I, I floundered my way, took different courses in college, doing different things, trying to find something that I liked. I worked anything and everything I could get my hands on just to try to make some money, just to kind of try to keep us afloat and did a lot of retail jobs, did a lot of odd jobs. And when I saw that the police department in the town I grew up in was hiring and I want to say the starting pay was like $14 an hour. And at that time it was like at least double what I was making anywhere else Mm -hmm. with really great benefits. I was like, well, you know, shit, I should see if I can do it. You know, it sounded super intimidating, but I went, I took the initial test. There were 72 of us that applied. And of the 72 people that applied, I was one of two that was hired. So... And from Uh, there, I just fell in love with it. So when you told me the first time um, what work you do, I was like, my first reaction is, whoa, why would anybody want to do that? (laughs) And not because of like, it's a shitty job, but I I can only imagine the situations you must deal with. On so many different levels, yes. Yes. And as I, well, you you know my stance on government. As as <laughs> my perception of the government, I cannot imagine having such an important job and profession while and also being supported enough to properly execute that and everything that comes with it. That's that that's just again complete shock. Um, how do people mostly respond to when you inform them what what it is you do? Um, I always get the same response. It's always like, wow, that must be a really stressful job. And then someone always says like, tell me about the worst call you've ever taken. Mm-hmm. And honestly, um, I, I appreciate people's curiosities. I'm also a very curious person. I think though that it's, it's an incredibly traumatic question, um, mm. because you're essentially people are asking you to, you know, regurgitate some of the worst scenarios they've ever experienced. Mm. And 
while I was, and this is kind of going off on a tangent, but while I, I did go back to school, I did, you know, when I finished my degree, I have a, a bachelor's in um, emergency services administration with a focus in emergency management. And while I was finishing up my degree, I took some incredible psychology courses, one of which, you know, I, I absolutely fell in love with psychology. My professor was amazing is amazing. He's a police officer, firefighter, and has a PhD. So he's he's unusually qualified to do what he does and, mm-hmm. and teach psychology courses for emergency services. And while I was working with him and and taking this class, I said to him one day during a group discussion, you know, it's almost as if dispatch doesn't even exist. And it's almost as if no one really gives a shit about us. Mm. And he said, you're right. So what are you going to do about it? Oh, so sure. that that led us down this course where we actually got together outside of class after the semester was over and we did what's called a phenomenological study. And that's just a big fancy word for the study of human subjects. But we wanted to talk to dispatchers and find out how some of these scenarios actually impact them. And what we learned without a shadow of a doubt is that dispatchers experience post-traumatic stress based on the things that they hear. And it people don't understand that because everyone thinks post-traumatic stress, you have to be there, you have to be boots on the ground. And they often overlook, you know, people like nurses and dispatchers mm-hmm. that are living mm-hmm. through these experiences that other people have gone through and are oftentimes, you know, helpless to all of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so going back to the question, you know, when people hear what I do, their first question, oh, you know, what's the worst call you've ever taken? Mm-hmm. And I don't mind talking about it because I've I've learned how to put my my feelings and my emotions kind of in check. But at the same time, I don't think that people quite understand that it can be incredibly traumatizing to relive some of the stuff that we've heard. Mm -hmm. And just to give us a little, little idea, like how long are your shifts? Like (laughs) how, how many people are you with in a room? Like, is it back to back calls? Um, Anything. Yeah, so I've worked in three different centers now. Um, I'm on my my third center. The center that I'm in right now, there are typically four of us in the room at every time, you know, every moment of the day, and the phones just don't—they just don't stop ringing. Sometimes mm. in the middle of the night, it gets—you know—we'll have a lull. But I work in a pretty large city now, and it's just nonstop. The first center that I worked in, we would have nights like that, days like that, weeks like that. I mean, I worked in Park City, which is the home of the Sundance Film Festival, and plus, you know, massive amounts of tourism to huge ski resorts. And so we would have moments like that, but there were two of us in the room at any given time, and it was pretty manageable most days. Hmm. So it just depends. I've never worked in a, you know, a major city like you know, like a New York or a Dallas or anything like that, or New Orleans. And I've never worked through a natural disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I've worked in a small agency and now a larger one. And, and yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty nonstop. You're, you're 
12 hours straight of getting your butt kicked and open 24 hours a day. So, you know, you have to be staffed 24 hours a day. I'm on graves right now. So I go into work at 6 p.m. and get off work at 6 a.m. And then try to get enough sleep to get back the next day and, and be a kind human, which can be difficult. I bet. And when when you applied for the job, um, there was some testing, like you mentioned. Is there also some sort what, what kind of training does this entail? Yeah, so testing can be as simple as the type test. You know, obviously you have to be able to type. It's all we do. But testing is also as intrusive as um, lie detector tests both, you know, voice and the kind where they strap you into the the machine. Mm -hmm. So, and drug testing and psychological evaluations and background examinations, they, they dissect every, every piece of your life. And if you get past all of that, and then you get into dispatch, you have to train for six months And along with that, you do a number of different certifications. Um, I have to be post-certified. Post is the police officer standards and training. So I have to be post-certified, not as an officer, but as a dispatcher. I have to be emergency medical dispatch certified so that I can give CPR instructions over the phone, that I can recognize Mm -hmm. a stroke um, when there's been one and get the appropriate help and give the appropriate directions to the caller before the medics ever get there because we're the only ones that that are helping those people until the actual you know police officers or paramedics or or whatever get there like those moments are are critical so you have to be fast you have to be sharp you have to know the software that we're using to, you know, ask the questions and get those answers recorded and get that information over to the responders. So we do that training. We do, um, uh, we have to be CPR certified. We have to go through NIMS compliance, which is, is basically FEMA and tells you, what, yeah. You a little bit what that is? Uh, so it is... The federal emergency management system essentially is tells you the ground rules for how to respond in an emergency. So when there's something catastrophic, when there's something that involves multiple agencies across multiple jurisdictions, it it's the the span of control, how many people each supervisor can adequately manage um, how you plan a staging area, how you, you know, organize supplies, what kind of resources do you need, um, Mm -hmm. how to do staffing, because, you know, initially when something major happens, the gut instinct for everyone in emergency management is get there now and stay there as long as you need to. But unfortunately, what that does is it leaves you no one to come in when those people have now been there 24 hours straight and haven't slept. Like, you have to have the foresight to see these things down the road. Hmm. And so NIMS kind of teaches you, it's the National Incident Management System. Like, NIMS kind of teaches you these different things um, 
different ground rules. It's it's the reason we don't use TED code on the radio anymore because if we're doing a multi-agency large-scale incident, my you know 10-4 might be someone else's 10-8. And if you're trying to convey one thing and they're hearing something completely different, you know, you're going to have have chaos. And, and that happened a lot during like Katrina, for example. Hmm. So they've learned some some hard lessons over time and, and made adjustments as they needed to. So I, I started thinking, first of all, it was a complete eye opener to meet someone amazing like yourself that does this work because I feel perhaps 99% of the population, including myself won't ever be aware of your existence at all or the job, right? Because we frankly never utilize 911 wherever all over the world we are. And I have never called 911 just to make a, I've never had a life emergency or anything that I would consider a life emergency, but I had, I found that I had some animosity because I found when I look back at my own history, my, my little, my, one of my brothers, um, not, not by birth, but by marriage, his, his stepdad uh, had a heart attack. And I remember his mom calling 911 and they didn't pick up the phone and that, that, that turned into, and that was my only like, in proximity experience and therefore my opinion maker about 911 right very valid um, yeah but but now that you know now that we grow older and now that i start to you know have a more in-depth understanding of how systems work and how the world works and like you know everyone everyone in the world is understaffed basically that's what i'm thinking at least right now now i'm just like shit like what is the other side of that you know I'm annoyed because y'all didn't pick up and he died. You know, it happens. Could he be saved? Who knows? Right. I don't want to go into these extremes. If they had to pick up, he would be still alive. We don't know. Things yeah. happen. Um, but now I'm just like, I feel like it, it's kind of like y'all only, no, no one calls y'all when, when there's time to celebrate, right? It's not like, hey, I'm having an amazing day. How are you, right? It's exactly. always something bad going on. So what I was interested in is how did you for yourself or maybe with external help learn to regulate your nervous system for it not to be in a complete attack every every time you have to pick up that phone? It, I mean, honestly... It all goes to training. It's years of, there was definitely, there was a long period of time when I first started that when that line rang, my heart would jump. And now it's just like any other call because I know that no matter what's going on at the other end of the line, likely I can handle it. Hmm. And but that comes with with years and years and years of training and experience and handling different kinds of calls. And unfortunately, most 911 operators don't get there because there is so much turnover mm. because, you know, working, doing shift work. And when a center is short staffed, there's, it's not like 
you know, you could hire a temp to just come in and, and sit down mm-hmm. and answer mm-hmm. phones. Like if mm-hmm. you're if you're center short staffed, which they all are, the only option is for everybody to work overtime. Mm. And so I'm sorry, I don't even know where I was going with that, but it's it's the type of thing where you know you you just go in and sit down and know that after time whatever happens with enough training you're going to know how to handle it and but it takes that's where I was going with that it takes time because mm-hmm. a lot of 911 operators um, they wash out within 6 months damn and that's a huge problem you know, industry-wide, is that you get in there and you start training, um, you start getting your certifications and going through the courses. And then all of a sudden, you know, you go through shift change and your body has to readjust and your family never sees you and you can't take weekends off or holidays off and you miss your anniversary and your kid's birthday and Christmas with your family and you burn out you burn out and so you quit and you never get to the level where those things don't stress you out anymore. So most dispatchers are either brand new or they have weathered a storm or two. Gotcha. And let me see how I, do you feel like there's a, perhaps like a healthy desensitization. Like I remember the first time I stuck a needle in someone, I was like, whoa, I had to recover from that. Now I can do that without any problems, right? Like it doesn't have any emotion on me. Um, is, 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 is that prevalent too in your job? I think that a lot of people probably feel like they're healthy and desensitized. And in reality, I don't, know that they ever are. Mm. Um, We have very diverse coping mechanisms and a very dark sense of humor. And you might think you're fine. And then all of a sudden, you know, you realize that that you're not. Mm -hmm. And it Mm -hmm. does get easier over time. And, you know, a, a dead body is a dead body is a dead body, whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're watching something on TV and you start panicking and you don't know why. And it's because Mm. you've suppressed all of that stuff because we don't focus nearly enough on our mental health. Mm -hmm. Is there any, any coaching and support within the training system, within the training center itself to I don't know, provide some guidance in like calming down, processing, um, any anything of that sort. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And I, I will say that some administrations do it much better than others, but everywhere I've worked, there has been, um, you know, we have access to mental health workers. We have access to, you know, peer support systems. There, we can, go through debriefings, which oftentimes will help us a lot because, you know, we might not know the resolution to a call because we're not there. Mm -hmm. So going through debriefings sometimes helps us, you know, we talk to the paramedics and, and find out, you know, if this person could be saved, why was it, you know, so that we're not 
internalizing all of it. Um, the state has um, critical incident stress teams that, you know, they employ. There's always, you know, everywhere I've worked, we've had access to gyms, um, workout equipment, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, at the last center I worked at, we had access to bikes if we wanted to go out and take a bike ride if there were enough people covering the office. Mm-hmm. So they do a really good job with that. I don't know that enough people take advantage of it, but it's, I've always seen it be available. It's it, okay. Gotcha. Are there um, just a random spur that I thought all of a sudden, are there, do you receive a lot of prank calls or like fake calls? No, no, fortunately not. Um, We, there was a a trend a while ago called swatting, which, you know, made national headlines where people would call in these, these horrible egregious things that, you know, were not based in reality. Um, and ultimately a bunch of people got caught and fined and jailed. And I think other people realized that it, it wasn't worth it. Uh, so we don't get a lot of that. I, I do remember taking a call one night though, where, you know, it was, we found out later, it was very much, um, a fake call. It wasn't a prank call per se, but someone called in a domestic to me. She said her daughter was involved in a a domestic incident that was physical. I had all of my officers running to one location to try to go save this woman. And meanwhile, they were really standing outside of a jewelry store that they then broke into and robbed. Yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, we, you know, we ended up catching them because, it, you know, I got all all sleuthy on it. We all did. But, yeah, people, you know, they're, they, uh, yeah. People are wild. <laughs> yeah. Can you see, can you see, um, can you see where people are calling from? Like, geographically, I mean? Yes and no. That is a great question. And I really wish that more people would understand this. So GPS, if it's enabled on your phone, yes, we have the ability to to track your location. And the longer you stay on the phone with us, the, you know, if you call 911, if you're not mm-hmm. calling 911, no. But we have the ability to track your location. If you're in good cell range, if you have good coverage, and the longer you stay on the phone, it kind of triangulates your location. But that does nothing for like, take a high rise apartment building. For sure. Yeah, because we can get your latitude and longitude, we can't get your elevation. Um, And if you call on an admin line, which a lot of people do as well, then a what line? um, Administrative. Oh, Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for example, um, we get this all the time. We'll answer the phone, you know, 911, what's the address of your emergency? And they'll give us an address in another town or another state. Mm. Because people have this notion that when they call 911, that we can handle the emergency wherever it is. When in reality, Mm -hmm. if you're sitting in, in Phoenix, Arizona, and your emergency is in Salt Lake City, Utah, and you call 911, you're talking to Phoenix, Arizona. We can't help you with an emergency 
in another jurisdiction. We sometimes mm-hmm. can transfer you to that agency, but if, you know, otherwise we're we're stuck. We've got to Google the phone number just the same as you. And people get so upset with us that we can't send help when the emergency is in another town or another state. But when you call, you're calling the closest police agency. Mm-hmm. So then it does lead people to end up calling, you know, the administrative lines for the proper police agency when there might be a very real, very life or death situation that they've got going on, you know, in another state that they're aware of, you know, someone is in a domestic situation and they call their parent instead of calling 911 and the parent calls 911. Mm can't get help to them where they are so oh, shit. yeah yeah I've, I've always had the idea that if anything anything ever happens to me in the house and i can't get to the phone i'll just post on facebook someone call 911 this is my address <laughs> help but hearing you explain this right now that wouldn't even be sufficient no unless they're in the the same same town as you no oh shit yeah Oh shit! And yeah, and I and I always had this idea that you just exactly see where I am if I call you, like to the dot. No, which clearly I know phone towers. You know, you the phone call jumps from phone tower to phone tower as well, depending on where you are. So, oh shit! And the you know the location tracking has gotten better as um, equipment's gotten better, technology's gotten better, there are more cell towers. It used to be that it would just go to, you know, the closest cell tower. And Mm -hmm. that often wasn't even in the town or the jurisdiction where you had the problem. Mm -hmm. Now it's gotten a little bit better than that. But take, for example, you know, I live in an area where there's a national forest basically in my backyard. It's a million acres. Mm-hmm. You go up there. First of all, you don't have cell service. And if yes. you leave to go get cell service, you're far, far away from wherever the situation was. So oftentimes mm-hmm. we will get phone calls where it's like, this is where the emergency is, but it happened 20, 30 minutes ago because I had to drive into cell range. Oh, shit. And at that point, you're just doing the best you can and scrambling resources. It, are there any? I know, I know, certain climbers and hikers they have a, some sort of GPS with a SOS emergency button that contacts someone they have installed it to, but not. There's no way to contact any emergency services, is it? Um, those people call us directly. Yeah, those things are amazing. They are. Amazing. I wish everybody who went into the backcountry had one because they are incredible. Um, when they make those SOS calls, the company that they have it registered through gets it. They have their details and they call us. It's, you know, like the same thing with um, like the medic alert bracelets. When you sign up for that service, if something happens to you, you know, you are, um, you place that that alert to the medic alert company. They have your mm-hmm. name, your address, your age, what your health conditions are, where the keys are to your house to get in, or what the garage code is. Mm-hmm. You know your family member names if someone needs to be contacted. They have all of that, so it makes it 
so much easier for us. But yeah, same thing with those like Garmin GPS mm-hmm. um, that people take into the backcountry. It's it's very it's super helpful because yeah. So if you're a hiker, climber, whatever, skier, whatever wild wild shit as white people do, get a GPS device, basically. Yes. <laughs> if you're going to be so anywhere it. without cell rate, cell service, absolutely. Uh, I was even I went hiking um, la- uh, this 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 weekend, like we have been, um, and there's no cell service, nothing. Yeah. It, it's great because you know pictures are amazing, no distraction. But I was like, well, okay, if anything happens, then you know anything happens. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> You're on your own. Exactly. What, um, am I correct in assuming, um, and I'm never, and I'm asking because I never know if it's just media hyped or if it's actually the case, but am I correct in assuming that misusing emergency services, um, is punishable or penalized in the sense that if I call you, Hey, um, you know, uh, someone, uh, called me uh, a cunt and I don't like it. Um, no, I don't. And that would be more on the, the criminal side that like an officer would better be able to answer. We typically, if someone calls us and they say that, you know, we're going to ask more questions, you know, we're going to try to get better answers and find out exactly why they're calling. The only time that, we've had people who have called over and over and over again because they didn't like the answers that we gave up, we gave them and they just wanted to scream at us. Mm. When you start to do that, um, when you habitually call for things that are not police matters, because that is, that's tying up a phone line. Someone might be trying to get through because they have an emergency. Mm -hmm. And so if you are habitually calling and harassing the 911 operators and misusing the system and potentially taking away emergency services from someone who really needs it yes like it is it is absolutely something that can be um, punishable gotcha well okay on that note what's what are but some people call words? us cuts all the time <laughs> like, well, I bet. so like just that by itself wouldn't do it <laughs> i was to it <laughs> i yeah, I wonder, yeah, I calling people names in any service industry in the broadest sense has never made sense to me. But okay, that's that's me. <laughs> Give me some of the most ridiculous calls you had. Oh, goodness. Well, so being in Park City, people are they have a, a different sense of reality, right? Um because we're talking about, you know, we're talking about a town that has, you know, 20, 30 million dollar houses. And so people are often just not really in touch with reality. <laughs> and so um, I, you know, I've had calls where people, you know, they wanted us to go out and check on a moose that they saw because the moose looked like its hoofs were overgrown and they really wanted that moose to have its hooves, his hooves like shaved down. Like, ma'am, we can't do that. And then they tell you that, well, you know, they're on the equestrian team. And so they're very knowledgeable about animals with hooves. And so they know that those moose's hooves need a trimming. Like, 
<laughs> we are not approaching this very large, very angry animal that has the ability to literally kill you to try to give it a pedicure. We just won't. I'm sorry. No. That's where we draw the line. And also, nature works perfectly balanced itself. Yes. Humans do not need to interfere. Yes. 100%. Many things that we get calls on, like, if you just leave it alone, it's going to resolve itself. So. Oh, shit. <laughs> but, okay, you need to give us some more. These are hilarious. Oh, goodness. Um, some of the, you know, some of the funnier, I mean, not really funny, but some of the funnier ones we also get because it's also, you know, it's a resort town. We get a people who call and I was in Park City last night and I stayed at a hotel and now I can't find my wedding ring. Mm. Okay, well, where where did you last have it? Um, well, I kind of took it off in my hotel room. And I was with somebody, and I'm wondering if maybe they took it. Oh, okay. So can you just reach out to that person and see if they took it? Well, no, because I didn't really get their name, age, background, whatever, whatever. (laughs) So, ma'am, I'm sorry that you took off your your $20,000 wedding ring. While you were, you know, with, having an affair, which I could care less about, but like, I'm sorry that that happened to you, but like, I'm not sure how you're going to explain that one because it's, yeah, that oh one's going to be goodness. a little tricky. <laughs> oh, shit. Or, you know, someone stole my purse and my birth control was in there and. I, my husband doesn't know that I'm taking birth control because we're trying to have a baby, but I was with someone else last night and needed, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You hear all sorts of fucked up things and you can't pass judgment. It's not your place. Like, no, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I don't care what someone else does, but you get a a lot of people making some very questionable decisions. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'll, I'll judge them for for the fact that they thought it was a good idea to call 911 because they lost their wedding ring during an affair. I will judge them for that. I, how how did that work in your head? How did you come to the conclusion that that was a good thing to do? Well, and, and oftentimes those people do, because we do answer the administrative lines as well. So, you know, for example, the center that I'm working in now, um, like you have a person that's answering the administrative phone calls, you have a person that's answering the 911 calls. Mm-hmm. And so, but ultimately, you know, it does all come into the same center and presumably you do have enough staffing for each person to be able to manage their workload independently. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if I'm the person who's answering admin calls that day and the 911 person's already on a phone call, like I am going to answer the 911 call. Gotcha. Gotcha. But, you know, people, yeah, people will call the admin line all the time. And in fact, some of the funniest, hands down, most hilarious calls I have ever taken in my life were from people who Googled Park City Police, did not bother to check to make sure that it was the correct Park City Police in Park City, Utah, 
and then proceed to call me and, you know, try to report things like dead bodies and stabbings and shootings and gang violence. And, and like, like, you know, you're calling Park City, Utah, right? Oh, yeah. No, my bad. I was looking for Illinois? Park City, Kentucky or Park City, Illinois oh, or... <laughs> I had to quickly Google to see indeed what comes up. And I'm just like, oh, Illinois, Illinois. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> yep. Like, yeah, ma'am, I'm calling about the dead body behind the trailer. Like, you're not calling Park City, Utah, sir. I mean, or you're not trying to call Park City, Utah, sir. Trust me. We don't we don't have trailer parks here. <laughs> so, Excuse me, ma'am. We don't have trailer parks here. <laughs> um, calling to report some suspicious gang activity. There's four black males. Um, this is Utah, ma'am. We, we don't have... We don't have black males in Utah. Yes. Very few. So <laughs> you're probably looking for Illinois. Oh, shit. It's, it's funny. It's funny. And oftentimes the people that Google the number and call the admin line instead of calling 911 have more legitimate emergencies that they should just be calling 911. But... <laughs> yeah. If you'd have to describe when when does one call nine one one? Okay, obviously like life emergencies. Hey, I'm choking. My person is choking. Um, car accidents. Absolutely. Yep. I think the so the general rule is to um, report a fire, to stop a crime, and to um, you know get immediate help for an emergency for a, a medical situation gotcha those are the general rules i mean like obviously you know things like a a child abduction a car accident you know a fight in progress things like that but we do you know and we try to educate people when they call mm -hmm. with non-emergencies like we need you to call back on our non-emergency line because again if, if something happens and people are trying to get through on 911 and they can't you know just because there's one major incident somewhere doesn't mean that there's not something else going on somewhere else um yeah so like we had a a brush fire one day and it was right on a major it was on i-80 right off of i-80 mm -hmm. so which is a huge interstate highway everyone and their dog was calling so we were finally just got to the point where we were answering the phones 911 are you calling about the brush fire and everyone was like yes 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 I'm like okay we've got help in route already we probably took a hundred calls within the course of a few minutes but one of those calls I answered, 911, are you calling about the brush fire? And she said, no, I'm in my car. I'm at this location. I'm at a stoplight and someone just pulled a gun on me. Okay. So now your brain is completely switching gears oh, because you're not prepared for that answer because you've been dealing in repetition and then someone throws you a curveball and you're mm. like, oh, okay, change course. Like, let's start sending help this way while the firefighters are running in this direction now we have the police running in this direction and who who like how is the the hierarchy of emergency decided when it's not life-threatening medically right like obviously if someone's having a heart attack that person needs help now 
but in a situation like, hey, we have a building on fire versus, you know, someone put a gun in my head, but is not in front of me right now anymore. Um, it's, it's always life over property, always, always gotcha. as a general okay. rule. And then it's immediate versus delayed. So presumably in an ideal world, you're always going to have enough firefighters and paramedics to send to your medicals and your fires. You're always going to have enough police officers to send to your, um, you know, crimes in progress and, and things like that. But we will often see times where you're just, you're out of resources and then mm -hmm. it's, you know, life over property and immediate versus delayed. I, st I still can't grasp. You're such a hero. Will you share some of your most memorable situations or calls doesn't whatever if it's good bad whatever you feel like that um because i want to honor the very good point you made with where everyone goes like oh what's your most horrible situation what's your most memorable so this wasn't even this didn't even necessarily happen directly to me but I was sitting at work one day and you have this radio screen and there's hundreds of radio channels and you listen to maybe, you know, two or three that directly relate to you. But mm -hmm. often because jurisdictions are so close and agencies are back to back to back, you're helping other agencies and you're working together. So you have other radio channels that you're sort of listening to but not always like if something is crazy and they need your help, they'll usually like call you on the radio, but you always mm -hmm. kind of have it in the background. So one day I was sitting at work and I heard the neighboring agency start talking about a school lockdown, which ordinarily wouldn't, you know, stress me out too much because they do that sometimes as drills. It just happened mm -hmm. to be the, the town next to mine where my son goes to school, where he lives with his dad part of the time. And I heard them start talking about, you know, Wasatch High School, which is where he goes. And then I mm -hmm. hear them start talking about a man with a gun. Mm -hmm. And I panic. I panic. I don't even know what to do at that point because I'm in panic mode. I'm not in, in dispatcher mode. I'm in panic mode. And one of the other dispatchers in there goes on the radio and asks them, is, you know, are you guys practicing a drill? And she said, no. Fuck. The thoughts going through my head in that moment <laughs> where I just wanted to run out the door and run over there and go check out my child. Um, I listened to the whole thing play out. They shut down the school they surrounded it. Um, I was texting my son the whole time. Give me an update. What's going on? He's like, I don't know. We're, you know, we're locked in our room. The teacher's here. Like we're doing all of the stuff we're supposed to be doing because of the drill. Thank, you know, thank Satan. It was mm. not, it turned out to actually be a wildlife officer in the area who had been called there to shoot a deer that had been injured. 
he wasn't in uniform. It just looked like a man walking around outside the school with a rifle on his back. Mm -hmm. And it just triggered this, this pandemonium. And that is the most helpless I have ever felt at work Mm. because I couldn't do anything about it. And I just had to listen to it all unfold in real time. Um, Because there had been multiple reports from people. It was verified information, you know, that this Mm -hmm. man was walking around outside the high school with a gun and then they lost sight of him. No one knew if he was inside or what he was doing there. And even though it turned out to be fine, I, you know, I've never been more afraid in my life as I was in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but they how did all the, they did all the right things, you know? I was about to ask, how could, it, how could have that been prevented in the sense that, you know, someone's calling uh, legit, right? Hey, we have a deer who's hurt here. It needs to be whatever. How could how could that have been handled properly? Um, you know, likely it was handled properly. Likely someone called in and there was a deer that needed to be dispatched and the dispatcher, you know, knew took the information and knew about it and added a call for it and called wildlife and they were probably like, Yeah, we're busy, we'll head over there in a little bit. Um but often there's so much going on that you lose track of those of those little details, right? Mm-hmm. Like it might have been hours before a wildlife officer was even able to get to the area to, you know, to do that because they might have had other things or they might have been traveling from far away. So unless you can remember everything going on everywhere, immediate and not immediate, which you can't realistically you know, it's, it's gonna, sometimes that's gonna happen. It's not, it's not often, but yeah. yeah. That sounds so scary. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm a mom before everything else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I am, I can handle all of the crazy, shitty, terrible calls. I've had people die on the phone with me. I, you know, dealing with kids though is is a completely different, completely different scenario because I'd say 90% of our callers are super calm, even in the face of like emergency situations, they're super Mm -hmm. calm, but dealing with parents, you can't, you can't reason with them. Mm. You can't calm them down. You can't reason with them. You can't talk sense into them. All you can do is try to get help to them, whatever's going on, because you're talking to somebody who can't process mm. the information you're giving them. Yeah. I did almost get to deliver a baby once over the phone, but then the, what? the stupid paramedic showed up and took away all my fun. No, we wanted a baby. It was the middle of a blizzard, blizzard, and they had a home birth plan, and it was Christmas. Oh. Um, I know. No. And we were in the middle of a blizzard and their midwife couldn't make it up the canyon to their home because it was a blizzard. So I almost got to deliver a baby over the phone, but ultimately the paramedics showed up and got all the glory. So such glory stealers. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so that would have been amazing, but oh well. 
Oh boy. Are there any, um, any other misconceptions that you'd like to, you know, shed light on towards us, us mere peasants who don't know anything <laughs> about your heroic life? Cause. Um, yeah, I mean, people don't, so dispatchers are often are classified through the state more like secretaries and not like first responders. And that's really difficult. Um, because, you know, our retirement is different. Our, you know, our pay, our pension, like all these things are different. Mm. And that can be super frustrating. Um, also, oftentimes, you know, if you think about a 911 operator, you think about the the calls that we take with the, you know, the, the calls, the callers being our, our primary concern they are, but we also are trying to keep an entire team of police officers safe too at the Mm -hmm. same time. And that's a completely different animal. I mean, I've had, I've listened to radio traffic where officers were, were getting the shit kicked out of them, you know, calling for help. And Mm -hmm. you're the person responsible for trying to get that help to them. And, so you've got that going on. You've got, you know, your own stresses at home and in your own life that you try to just block out so that you can go in and focus on your job. But I mean, it's, it's great. Like you're getting stressed from every, every direction mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. everything that you do is being recorded and every, you know, we do quality assurance. So, our calls are reviewed to make sure we ask the right questions and we get the right information. Um, all of our, our phone calls, all of the instant messages we send on the computer, everything's being recorded and everything can be used against us. Um, there was a long time where defense attorneys, and I don't know if they still do, but defense attorneys are pulling you know, all of your audio all of your instant messages, emails, whatever, for an hour before and an hour after an arrest is made to see what kind of mindset you were in that day and if you were capable of doing your job. And so we're constantly scrutinized and we have to deal with the public being, you know, being super shitty to us all the time. But then we also have these terrifying scenarios where, you know, I had two of my officers, two of my very, very close friends, almost get hit by a drunk driver one night. They were yeah. they were on the road. They were, you know, they had pulled over. Their lights were on. Their cars were parked. They were trying to help this guy who was trying to walk home drunk from one of the bars, but he was on a major road. And the next thing I hear is them coming over the radio yelling, like, send us more help our cars were just totaled. I watched the video. This woman crossed five lanes of traffic, came within inches of hitting my police officers in oncoming traffic and totaled their cars because she was so drunk. She had no idea. Fuck. And inches, inches away from hitting them. Hmm. Um, I had another officer who had had some surgery. He thought he was fine. He came back to work. He was doing well. 
he checked out on just a, a normal directed call, which just means he was sitting there, he was running speeders, it was late at night, so he wasn't doing a lot of traffic stops. And he's the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Like he would stop people and just be like, hey, cool, just slow down, you know, like go on your way, have a nice day. And I didn't think much of it. And then after an hour, we checked on him because, you know, we just wanted to hear his voice and make sure he's good. And that's our protocol. Check on him after Mm -hmm. an hour and he doesn't answer. And so we try calling him again on the radio and he doesn't answer. We call him on the phone and he doesn't answer. Fortunately, we have their GPS. Like we know where they are (laughs) most Mm -hmm, of the time mm -hmm. and they have it turned on. We know where he checked out at. We know where he was. We start running everybody and everything that he had just run to just see who he was with, what he was doing while we're sending help to go check on him. And the next thing I hear is my sergeant coming over the radio, just yelling for me to get an ambulance. He had an infection he wasn't aware of. And he went septic and he lost consciousness. And he had been sitting there, sitting there in his car unconscious. And if we hadn't checked on him, I mean, who knows? Mm. Who knows? And it's because we checked on him and we found him. We were able to get help to him. We were able to get him to the hospital. And, you know, he was burning up and shaking and when I went and saw him at the hospital, when I left my shift that night, he said, I went on a traffic stop. I got back in my car. I called out clear. He's like, two minutes later, you know, the sergeant was knocking on my window. And I said, that wasn't two minutes. That was an hour. <gasps> yeah. You were unconscious. Fuck. But we got him. We found him. And that is hard. And I... I know, I know in today's climate, and you know my own personal leanings, I know in today's climate, it's easy. It is easy to dislike police officers. I get it. I dislike, I dislike a lot of them. I dislike a lot of the stuff that they do. And it is, it is hard to work with some of the best guys you've ever met and mm. close to their wives and their kids and literally save their lives and know how much people hate them. I love that you touched on this because um, I, I, I was just recently having a conversation about this. Um, we need, first of all, we need more nuance in conversations like this. I feel like, you know, uh, hip Twitter phrases such as, you know, defund the police is absolutely not the answer and it's only used by people who have no fucking idea how the system works most of the time right someone who actually understands the system will say it it will get taken out of context and then everyone's parroting the same fucking phrase um and worse yet if i could just interject no, just one small absolutely. thing worse yet is that the people that came up with defund the police have very openly said it was never about defunding police it's about reallocating resources there we go there we just we picked go. a shitty catchphrase and it's like no, yeah you absolutely. did <laughs> yeah absolutely that's what i'm saying like it's being taken completely out of context without what you know a part of that phrase used to mean um what i personally I feel if I look at my surroundings, and even as a European, East and West European, right? I remember when people would grow up and they would look at, you know, police officers as these heroes and, you know, they were actually bettering 
society, right? Making society a safer place. And then, you know, they pers- they wanted to pursue uh, uh, the career of a police officer or anything ar- around that. Let me just say that in a broader sense. And then they realized that most of cops work is there's an financial incentive to it. And there's target financial targets that be are needing to be hit that have nothing to do with making the world a better place. And I feel that that's not, obviously that's not the fault of the police officers, right? That, that what we're talking about a system here. Um, and as, as, as a new, new, new member of the United States myself, um, and, you know, taking my CCW, um, going into the elaborate classes, um, just to understand it more and just the laws around it. It, it was even interesting to see how, um, certain media hypes have been used to kind of spawn the hate on cops, right? Yeah. Um, we have a racial division. Um, is there racist racism? Is there systemic racism? Absolutely. Does that mean that every cop is a racist? Absolutely not. And this is, I feel like those are the conversations that we need to fucking have. Um, and I was shocked to learn how, how extreme the media here is. Um, there was one incident recently that, or recently in the last, I don't know, five years, let's, let's say that where, um, it was, the media portrayed it as a racial incident. Meanwhile, when you look at the whole footage, you see, uh, a male of color, you know, with a with a knife, and the, several police officers tell him, "Please drop the weapon, drop the weapon, drop the weapon." He reaches into his car, and then he gets shot. Um, now, these are important nuances because you, we don't call the cops; don't get involved. All just like y'all, it's not you don't call the cops for fun unless you call them. You know, you call a striptease with a copper <laughs> uniform, but. <laughs> So defunding the cops or taking away, it would never be the solution. If anything, it would require to take a the profit away, right? A profit system away from it and allocating more resources so people get more training, more support. Because we, we, need, we need a form of protection in this world. We need someone, to an authority to call to. Yes. However, the current system is messed up. That's like, that's the short version, right? And I work, you know, I worked, I'm not there now, but in, you know, Park City, it's like I mentioned before, it's a very wealthy community. There's a mm-hmm. lot of money in the community. Mm-hmm. And I can honestly say that those officers are, they're so well trained. They're mm-hmm. trained in de-escalation techniques. They're trained in critical incidents. Uh, but, you know, the county that I'm in went even beyond that. We have a mobile crisis outreach team. Mm. So if there's a person in crisis, like, cause they recognize the police are not always the best people to be handling people in crisis. You know, it could trigger something for that person. It could, you know, they might've had a bad experience with police officers. Mm -hmm. The police officers on duty might not have the correct training. We have a mobile crisis team that now when there's a person having a, a mental health crisis, we can dispatch them, you know, and the police will often go just to keep them safe. You know, same reason they go on medical calls with the firefighters and paramedics when there's a chance that someone might try to hurt those paramedics. Like 
the police will go to keep those unarmed, you mm-hmm. know, civilians safe. But mm-hmm. by allocating money to a mobile crisis unit, they're able to handle so many of these these situations where before an officer was the only person we had to send. Yeah. Do do okay. Let let's let's sketch some utopia situations. <laughs> I love I love because I I always love working from utopia and then back to like how how much would what what would the realistic solution be to get to that utopic situation, right? So I'm not going to the utopic situation where we don't need police officers, right? Because in a complete utopia, we wouldn't need them, of course. Um, but let's take it a step further. If we if it wasn't a financial problem. How do you feel um, the the whole that system could be bettered? Because you're so close to it from different angles, right? Um, mental health resources, huge, huge um, money to be spent on drug rehabilitation, huge. I mean. I don't know a single person who has has or had a drug problem that can afford mm-hmm, to get treatment. Mm-hmm. Mm. It, you know, a lot of those places are are twenty thousand dollars a month. There are no options for mm-hmm. people who have been addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, I mean, actually helping people move past why, you know, if we mm-hmm. eliminate. We eliminate the why, right? Mm-hmm. And that then eliminates the need for what is going to happen. You know, we're mm-hmm. only sending officers on the calls that we take. Mm-hmm. So in the actual utopia, we wouldn't have calls to send them on. Mm. But that has everything to do with, you know, you have um, a woman who is is habitually in domestic situations with their partner or a man. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be, it can Mm -hmm. be either side. You know, if we had the resources to say, you know, are you willing to leave right now? Because here, we're going to take you to this Mm -hmm. place and you can be there and it's safe. And we're going to provide these things for you so that, you know, you can get back on your feet and be away from your abuser you know, Mm -hmm. would you go? People, I think, would go. Mm. But oftentimes, they don't have those resources. People don't have anywhere to go. Um, If you go to somebody who is stealing because they're trying to support a drug habit, and you say, like, hey, we're going to take you to this rehab center, rather than locking you up in jail, we're going to take you to this rehab center, and you're going to finally kick this addiction, yeah, I'm, I'm a personally just to quickly interfere. I'm a huge fan of what Portugal did, which is decriminalizing all drugs, um, which is not the fucking same as legalizing for anyone anybody listening. But it simply means if if you catch someone, you know, with any tricks on you, they're not going to fucking jail because that's not going to fucking help. No one, by the way, it's not going to help anyone. Nope. Um, so I'm a huge fan of that, and it seems to really, really, really work on a social social scale. Uh, if you take Portugal and and there's wh- who, there's another state who decriminalized everything now here in America, um, Oregon. I think it was Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like get you know if you 
help people if you mm-hmm. if you get them you know nobody wants nobody truly wants to be in that position nobody mm-hmm. and i mean i don't mean to speak for everyone else i then i shouldn't say everyone or no one but like i think most people don't they don't want to be homeless they don't want to be in an abusive relationship they don't want to be an addict but we have made it almost impossible as a society for people to change that mm. because there's no there's no money in it mm-hmm. there's no mm-hmm. money in getting people better mm-hmm. you know and until we take away those catalysts we're just reacting to the same things yeah yeah absolutely um and and touching on the like the comment you made it's so in in a climate like this it's so easy you know there's so much hate towards the police um do you feel some of that hate might be um i don't want to say right but understandable absolutely 100 percent uh could not agree more I, I've tried to look outside of myself, look outside of the, I live in a very homogenous state. Mm -hmm. Um, I've tried to look beyond that because just because my experiences with police officers have been happy and positive and formulative and friendly, like my experience is not, you know, as a white woman, like in mm-hmm. a very white religious state, like my experiences are not those that of the majority of other people. And so you have to put yourself in check, check your own biases and realize mm-hmm. that like my experiences are not everyone else's and mm-hmm. what people are experiencing on a, a day-to-day basis is very real. It's very traumatic and it makes me so incredibly sad and i don't know how that can be fixed because it's a problem that's bigger than one one police officer one department it's the entire system the system is is broken and institutionalized racism and it's all very real and we don't even we don't notice it. We don't recognize it because it's become a part of, of everything we see and hear. And I do believe that there are absolutely 100% cops out there that are blatantly, openly, unequivocally, like Mm -hmm. shitty people and and racist. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there's a huge population out there too, that doesn't even realize that they're acting in a racist way. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and to I feel like my personal experience with cops have been 50-50 and I'm talking worldwide not um I have I've had very shitty experiences in with cops in America I've had some amazing one in the Netherlands Germany and Czech Republic also some kind of like eh but it's interesting how as as we grow older right like I know one of my girls who would get beaten up by her partner um and she would go to the cops because of that right that's every everyone says you need to go to the cops you need to report 
And everyone was kind of at the police. Yeah, well, okay, we'll make a report of it. You know, nothing happens. And I, I, I felt very strongly about that, right? I had very strong feelings about, you know, why wasn't she helped straight away? And then until a few years later, I learned that, I don't know, fucking 99% of how, don't pin me down on the percentage of people who are being abused, they keep going back. Which all then makes me understand the the other side, where it's like, well, you know, big chance this person is gonna go back to that person anyway. So why would I invest? Right? Like it's we have these un unrealistic expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until you know it's a it's a very very fine line because again, even if the police were to you know they arrest somebody, they lock that person up. I mean, I worked at a center where the jail was right in the same building. We'd have the other parties showing up to bail them out of jail. Oh. Like, <laughs> and and you do, like, you do get to a point where you're like, why do we keep responding over here when they're, you know, they're breaking up, they're getting back together, the same yeah. things keep happening. But yeah. they do, they go back every time. And now, you know, the, the center that I used to just work in, um, the police officers then started having to do lethality assessments, which mm-hmm. is a way to track every time they go out there. Is it getting worse? Is it, you know, what's happening? Because now there are certain benchmarks that have to be hit, but you know, before they can take certain actions, but going back to resources, where are those, you know, where are those people, men, women, you know, whomever are being abused, where are they supposed to go? Mm pick up and, and go stay at a, a safe house and a shelter and be, you know, you still have to go to your job. It's, it's a, it's an extreme, extreme complex conversation. If we're going to go into that, because then we're also getting um, into topics such as blame, personal responsibility. Um, you know, if you grew up in an abusive home, your relationship, your dynamic and relation to what is healthy and what's normal is going to be significantly different if you grow up in a more healthy and loving environment, right? Your your yeah. your perception. So it gets extremely, extremely complex. And I don't think, and I think in, you know, this world of vast technology and everybody wants a 120 ca- character Twitter answer, we need to move away from that because it's significantly much more complex. Um, and I think... We need to be able to hold the polarities and the paradoxes simultaneously. Yes, there are extremely, if if I'm if I'm correct, like the the domestic violence amongst cops and their partners is excessively high. Um, does that all does that equal all cops are bad? No. Does that mean that we need to completely eradicate cops? Also, no. Right. We need to be able to hold these conversations and the different points in them. And to not stigmatize mental health. I feel like if more people felt comfortable, you know, discussing and receiving mental health, like um, there would, you know, and this is across the board, like not just cops, but you take any Mm -hmm. high stress, high stress position and you, you're going to get tired, you're going to get stressed and you're going to snap if you don't figure out healthy coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. But we stigmatize mental health so much. And then we hold people like police officers to a completely different standard when in reality, you know, they're, 
they're just as prone to these, you know, these psychological things as everyone else. Mm -hmm. And where we have a society where it's like, if you try to talk about, you know, mental health, you get, you know, oh, well, you know, that's not an appropriate conversation type of Mm -hmm. responses. And it is, it has to be discussed, but we don't. Have you um, known any uh, police officers who kind of went into the job with the idea like, yo, I'm going to catch crooks, basically, right? And then realize that the the way the system currently isn't working does not align with their morals or their, you know, original intentions to join the force? Um. No, I mean, most of the cops that I know either retired or moved to different agencies. I can't really think of anybody that I know that left the force to go pursue other other avenues. Mm, gotcha, gotcha. I feel like they really wanted to... I've never sat down with, with an officer who said to me, you know, anything other than like, I'm doing this because I want to, I want to help people. I want to Mm -hmm. protect the community. I've I've never had any answer other than that. Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, they believe it. It's, it's very much who they are. Gotcha. I love it. And as dispatchers, we, you know, we just have to try to keep them safe and keep them from, you know, doing stupid shit. (laughs) So it's like, why did you run into that? You know, I had officers once that ran into a mechanical room after, you know, a, uh, a Freon system broke underneath an ice rink. And it's like dummies, like (laughs) you guys are going to get sick and hurt because you wanted to run in and try to be hero, like let the firefighters mm. show up with their PPEs and their oxygen and do that so that you're not dying from, you know, something preventable. Like, gotcha. listen, children, you know, <laughs> listen, <laughs> wait for help. Like, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, before we end up, is there anything you want to tell the normal civilian listeners? Um, not really. Just, yeah. If you do ever have to call, we are extremely well-trained in what we do. And oftentimes, you know, I have to tell people like, I need you to slow down. I need you to stop talking. There's very specific questions I need to ask you. Mm-hmm. And the sooner I can get those answers, the sooner I can get help to you. Oftentimes when people call, they're just like talking a hundred miles an hour about everything that happened 10 years ago that led up to this point. And then you oh, get God. through the conversation and it's like, okay, so, but why did you call today? Oh, because my ex-boyfriend's back and he's banging on my door and I think he has a weapon. Like, okay, well, you gotcha. should like lead with that or let me ask you questions that will get us there faster because we, you know, we are experts in getting 
the best information as fast as possible. Mm. And so oftentimes we just need our callers to stop talking and just start answering our questions as we ask them. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds horrible, but it's like, like we like it even, and especially on medical calls and people will get so frustrated. And they'll be like, just send somebody. It's like, okay, well, in order for me to finish, like we go through, it's an entire flow chart. It is an intricate system mm -hmm. that has been around for 30 years that every word is scripted. Every word mm -hmm. is precise. We ask the questions that are in front of us in an order and a manner that is 100% scripted to get the best information as quickly as possible while, you know, also getting help. Dispatchers actually have been found to be able to diagnose a stroke over the phone better than paramedics in the field. Mm. And that is a, a study that was actually done um, because we are asking like I said, every word and every once in a while, a word won't jive and they'll change it and you have to relearn it. But it's made so that it's so precise, you know, because we used to have like, you know, if he becomes less awake and vomits quickly, turn him on his side. And now mm -hmm. we say if they become less awake and vomit, you know, quickly lay them on their side. Mm -hmm. Like, but it's it's every word we say is carefully crafted. Mm hmm. And so we do need to ask questions and it might seem like it's not getting you anywhere, but I promise you, like the faster we can ask those questions and get the answers, like the better we're all going to be. And we really aren't trying to like be frustrating by asking you, you know, we'll say, are they, you know, is he awake? Yes. Is he breathing? A lot of people are like, well, why would you ask me if they're breathing? If you just asked me if he's awake and I said, yes, because you can be awake and not breathing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all of that information, every answer that we type into the computer system takes us to a new page of the flowchart. And every time we put in new information, it redirects us to make sure that we're getting the right information as quickly as possible. And it can be frustrating to callers because they're like, why are they asking me these stupid questions? But it's very deliberate. Mm -hmm. So that's all I'd say. Just, you know, yeah. Listen, listen to your but 911 operator be, and yeah. answer the but, questions. <laughs> let the professionals be the professionals. Precisely. And then the last personal question, if you could tell your, let's say, 11-year-old Jessica self something, what would it be? doesn't have to be catchy, short, doesn't have to be long, anything and everything. It could be light, deep, whatever. It would... Be that um, you're always going to have a thing for firefighters. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Loud and clear. <laughs> Cops, maybe not so much. They can kind of be jerks, but firefighters, man, oh, man. They come into the building and I'm just like, oh, I... <laughs> God help us. So that goes into such a... In, a weird Freudian thing because my dad was a firefighter when I was growing up, right? So mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time at, at fire stations and there will just, so maybe it's daddy issues, maybe it's, I don't know. But, you know, working in a building full of firefighters does not suck. Does not suck. We're not mad. We're not 
Thank you so, 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 so much for having me. I'm uh, going to quit the recording in a bit. Thank you so, so, so you're much. You're welcome. Thank you for asking. Absolutely. And um, my Fearless Wealth listeners, spread the word, spread the news, print screen, screenshot, tag us, and uh, let's go. Bye-bye, Jessica. And as per usual, if you. you've Love enjoyed you so it much. or hated it so much or just got sparked interest or had any feelings about this episode, take a screenshot, tag me, take, tag Fearless World, share it on your stories, on your timeline, everywhere. Leave a review, share it with your friends secretly if you can't be public about it. And uh, just to give you a heads up, the things that are going on currently, we have Blood Coach 2.0 coming up with Jesse Magic. The Dom course is fully live. The Dancing with the Demons is live. And the money course will come at the end of the year. But meanwhile, get into that fearless wealth yourself. Celebrate, celebrate gratitude. And as per always, don't forget to hydrate because self-care makes you a millionaire and you are rich and hydrated. <laughs>